You're listening to DraftKings Network. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brand. I'm your host, Andrew Brand. We are produced by Jack Connell, musical producer of my son, Sam Brandt. Follow him at Boy Blue Tunes. We are presented, as always, by DraftKings. Okay, here's what we're going to do today. Joe Pompliano, a lot of people listening know sports business. He's a name that's out there. He's got that hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. He's got over 100,000 newsletter subscribers. And he does a podcast. We're all in the same space, the business of sports. He does it a little differently than I do. He had me on his podcast last week. We talked about all things NFL, Roger Goodell's extension, the Raiders with Tom Brady, which we'll, I'll get into in a minute, and things like the Amazon and media deals and going forward with Amazon and Thursday Night Football. We get into it pretty well. And I thought it was something that I should share with this audience we're basically Joe's kind of interviewing me about things, but it's interesting, I think, to this audience because we get into it from my perspective and he adds a bit of a different perspective covering a lot of areas that I don't with, of course, Formula One and uh, European soccer. So I wanted to share this podcast that I did with Joe Pompliano on this podcast. And before we get there, I want to do a couple of rants about what's going on out there. But Soon to come, I want you to hear my interview being interviewed, an interviewee, if you will, with Joe Pompliano. First, let's talk about this Jimmy Garoppolo waiver, and we'll talk about the Tom Brady aspect to it, which, again, had not surfaced when I talked to Joe about Tom Brady buying a stake of the Las Vegas Raiders. So here we are. It was reported this weekend that we have a injury waiver in the contract between the Las Vegas Raiders and Jimmy Garoppolo. It was signed in March, and we're just discovering this waiver. Of course, the Raiders probably don't want it out there, and Jimmy G and his agent probably didn't want it out there, so it just sort of goes unnoticed until it's discovered this weekend. All right, here we're, here's where we are. I want to say a few things about an injury waiver. They're more common than you think. Everyone listening probably doesn't expect seems like this is odd. They're more common than you think. In my 10 years at the Packers, I must have done, I don't know, 25, 30, 40 injury waivers on players. So what an injury waiver does, it absolves liability from the team to the player in the event of a recurrence of the same injury. Now, this is for lawyers, and this is where lawyers and negotiators prove their worth. From a team perspective, you want to absolve liability for anything related to that injury, a recurrence, a re-injury, or words like relating to, associated with, derived from that injury. That's how you want to protect the team. If you're negotiating for a Garoppolo, you want to limit it to a re-injury, say, or an aggravation of the same injury at most. You don't want to get into associated with, related to, derived from. And we don't know exactly where this goes with the waiver that Jimmy Garoppolo signed, but 
the basic premise is he had surgery on his foot. He has a foot injury. If something happens with that foot now, they can get out of it. And when I say get out of it, avoid $22.5 million guaranteed this year and another $11 million guaranteed next year. They can walk away scot-free. So is this something that everyone feels good about at this point? I'm sure the Raiders would say, yeah, we think he'll be better. I'm sure Garoppolo and agent Don Yee would say, we know he's going to be better. But contracts and negotiations are about worst case scenarios. It's easy to do a contract. It's easy to talk about things going swimmingly. What lawyers and negotiators are really all about is what if things go south? And this is where it might go south, that Garoppolo has a tenuous foot. Now, we can all sit here in three months or a month or two months and say, yeah, he's practicing, he's playing, it's great, he's working out, he's putting pressure, he's cutting on the foot, no problem. And once he passes that physical, my understanding is this waiver goes away. So we can look at that as no big deal. But if there's a problem with this foot, that's a problem. That's a problem. So the waiver is important. Now, the difference between this waiver and the waivers that I did for many years and the waivers that I've seen is that virtually every waiver I did, no, every waiver I did was for a down-the-line player, okay? Not a great player, not usually not even a starter. It'd be for players off the street that we know have a big injury and they're just trying to get another shot even though they've got this injury, or older veterans trying to give it one more go after a tough injury. And, of course, they don't have a lot of leverage. They'll sign whatever it is. There's a report from Albert Breer, my colleague at SI, that James Robinson signed not one, not two, three waivers in signing with the Patriots and protecting them. So this happens. The difference here is it's your starting quarterback, your starting quarterback, the guy that's the face of the franchise, the guy that's going to lead you out of the bottom of the AFC West. That's scary. From a front office perspective, from a team perspective, from a fan perspective, as everyone knows, that's a little scary because they did not protect themselves with, I don't know, you could say they did drafting a quarterback late. They have bought Brian Hoyer. He's always you know, going to be a sure veteran that you can count on to sort of just hold the fort. But they don't have anyone else, and they're not going to throw in a low-round well, they may have to throw in a lower out rookie or throw in Hoyer for a long term, but that's where we are. So the natural question, well, the question before we get to Brady is, why didn't they go after others? I, always, I am still dumbfounded at some level that Aaron Rodgers, two-time MVP in the last three years, had only one suitor, had only one suitor, the New York Jets, not the Las Vegas Raiders. Not even the Houston Texans, not the Carolina Panthers, not pick a team. I mean, not uh, not any of these teams, Indianapolis Colts, Tennessee Titans, nothing. But anyway, Jimmy Garoppolo supposedly had the Texans and the Raiders, chose the Raiders. We thought it was $22.5 million this year, 11.25 on a bonus, 11.25 on a salary. Now we learn that is contingent, and that's a major contingency. 
So we'll follow Jimmy Garoppolo. So now, obviously, the thoughts lead to Tom Brady. He is now a minority owner in the Las Vegas Raiders. And the question is, if Garoppolo goes south, they don't have a proven backup, would it be Brady? Now, there's two parts to this. Would the league allow it as a minority owner coming in to play quarterback? Well, I don't know that. I've never experienced anything like that. No one ever has. So I don't know. My sense is it would require some sort of approval from ownership, whether it be 24 out of 32, all 32, some necessitated approval from the membership, the owners of all 32 teams. The issue that I want to discuss here is valuation, if he plays. So this is something that I learned covering the NFL for ESPN 10 years ago when I was covering the the free agent tour of Peyton Manning. Manning, as you remember, the great Hall of Fame player, one of the biggest names in the history of the sport, I think still one of the highest paid players in the history of the sport, was released. Yeah, not traded released by the Indianapolis Colts. And he went on a free agent tour and there was Arizona and there was Denver and there were Miami and there was San Francisco and all these teams. The one thing that was out there when he's being recruited as a free agent is what if one of these teams, and it was rumored the Tennessee Titans offered him a stake as well as salary or a stake instead of salary. So when I was covering the league, I was actually, when that rumor was coming out, I was visiting the league offices and stopped by the management council, which values these contracts, which does all the cap and contract compliance. And I said, what if that happens? What if that happens? Could that happen? And the answer I got was, yeah, that could happen. But the valuation would be whatever the valuation of the stake as a cap number. Okay. So if a play is, let's say the Titans were valued at, I don't, uh, let's say the Titans were valued at five, I don't, I don't even know what the valuation was 10 years ago. Say they were valued at a billion five of 10 years ago. If you got 1%, that's $15 million plus whatever salary. You would have to count that. So let's spin it to Brady. We don't know exactly, but the Raiders valuation may be $5 billion. We don't know Brady's stake, but for for our purposes, let's say it's 1%. We don't know if we paid for that 1%. We don't know if we paid retail. I doubt it, of course. But if he has 1%, they're going to value that 1% at roughly $50 million. That will be Brady's cap number and whatever salary and bonus proration is on top of that. So again, I'm less cognizant of whether ownership would allow him to play But if he does play, my understanding is valuation for him would start at 50 million if he has 1%. Now, maybe he has 2%. Maybe it's $100 million. Maybe he has 3%. It's 150, which of course would never work with a cap. But maybe he has less. Maybe he has a quarter percent, which would be 12.5 million, or a half percent, 25 million. And these kind of things would be used in valuation of Brady's cap number. So I think it's fascinating that, you know, this is an issue to talk about academically. Again, we're a long way from Garoppolo not playing and the Raiders absolving themselves of 35 million of guarantees, but it could happen. And the Raiders protected themselves. Now, as to the Raiders, I mean, come on, a year ago, 
they signed Derek Carr to a four-year extension, cut him six months after that. So Derek Carr is always the, a big example for me when, I, when I'm preaching on the mountaintop about guaranteed contracts. Derek Carr was supposed to have $40 million guaranteed this year, but he had to get to March. So it wasn't a real guarantee, and he never got to March. He only got to February. So he ends up going to the, to the Saints with a similar guarantee. But it's really an interesting concept what these Raiders are doing at the quarterback position. Derek Carr got an extension, lasted six months. They signed Jimmy Garoppolo. Oh, he had foot surgery. Waiver. So we'll see. Again, contingencies are everything. We're going to see if, if Jimmy Garoppolo has recovered and is full go in the next couple months, but the Raiders have protected themselves. Okay, without further ado, I want to get you to me being interviewed by my colleague in the sports business world has become very popular. It's Joe Pompliano. We have a nice, smart, interesting conversation. And without further ado, here it is. All right, everyone. Andrew Brandt is back on the podcast. Welcome back, Andrew. How are you doing today? It's always good to be here, Joe. I always enjoy coming on with you. Yeah, me too, man. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. For those that don't know who you are, you're my expert on everything the business side of NFL. You worked for the Packers for a long time. You've done a bunch of other stuff in media, and you have a great deal of experience, both at the team, but the league and the media side too. So we talked a little bit before this, and I just want to run through a variety of topics that are happening in the NFL today and get your take, some insight, and kind of talk through some of the specifics. So I think the most logical place to start is Roger Goodell. So for people that don't know, he has an interesting background, I would say. He started as an intern with the NFL, worked his way up through a bunch of different roles. He's been the commissioner for the last you know couple decades now almost, and he's about to get his contract renewed. What are you hearing on that side? What are you thinking about that decision to renew his contract? Where do you think this goes? Yeah, Joe, like you said, we're going to talk about a lot of topics. What's interesting is we are in the absolute middle of the offseason in the NFL. (laughs) There's like no games the past three months. There's no games the next three months. And here we are. I'm busy as ever talking about the NFL. That just shows you the power of the brand. And Roger is the brand. Roger's the face of the NFL. I think more than other commissioners are even the faces of their leagues. And I think that's because ownership, that's his constituency, that's who he reports to. We can talk about the fans and the players, but the bottom line is he reports to the owners. And I think they've empowered him, you could say for good or worse or bad, to be their voice, to be their face, to be their out front face of the league. Whereas in other sports, and I think basketball a lot with this, Owners are more out front and owners get a little bit more the Mark Cubans and whoever it may be than, say, owners in the NFL absent Jerry Jones. I mean, I think Goodell is what the owners want him to be. He's that corporate, strong jawed, bland, unrevealing <laughs> face of the league that takes the bullets so they don't have to. And what I mean by that is when we hear about the lightness of the Deshaun Watson suspension or the what they're doing with officiating and what they're doing with Amazon we're going to talk about and the heavy-handedness of the player negotiations and CBA, it seems to always come back to him. But he's really just the messenger. He's really just the person that's out front in, in, in front of all this. But what it really means is the owners like that. They want that. They want this person that can deflect all of that. 
And he does a good job, as I said, answering questions without answering questions. He's very good at deflecting, as I said, giving bland, unrevealing answers that don't really tell you a lot, but it's what they want. So when I think about a commissioner job, I think about it, are you serving your base? And the base is the owners. And let me just say this. I don't want to be flippant that he's just there as a shield. He has done some amazing deals under his helm. I mentioned the player deal. That's a 10, 11-year deal. And it's a very team-friendly deal. It's got a lot of angles for owners and teams to get the best out of player contracts. Now, as soon as he got that deal in 2020 during the pandemic, he then went to the networks and got these stunning, stunning media deals with Fox, with ESPN, with CBS, NBC, and of course, Amazon. And they last for another 11 years at $110 billion. So it's these kind of metrics, franchise values are all going north. All of that combined, the owners are like, yeah, let's continue to have this guy. And we hear about 2027. You know, Joe, I think whatever his money is, they're fine. At one point, it was rumored to be $64 million a year, which is $2 million per team. And if you asked any owner, is this guy worth $2 million to me? Fine. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's the discussion. Yeah, I was just going to say it feels like uh, the perception from the fans versus the owners is completely different, right? Like a lot of the fans obviously don't like him. They see him as taking the fun out of the game, implementing rules and doing things that aren't necessarily fan friendly. But from a business perspective, I don't think there's any argument that he's been excellent. Right. Like if you look at what are the most important things, it's labor peace with the players, which he was able to get done multiple times. They even added another game this past time, right, where they probably didn't give players as much as they initially thought they might have to. Then he uh, goes out and he gets these media deals that you just pointed out. And what does that do? The franchise valuations are just continuing to go north and they don't have to worry about this for another decade now. So if you're the owners, to your earlier point, not only are you shielded where you don't have to deal with a lot of this stuff, he is the face, he gets a lot of the crap, but also your pockets are nice and heavy, right? Like you're, you're, you're making money and everything seems to be going well. So, you know, 60 million, 70 million, even if he's making a hundred million dollars a year, I don't think it makes a huge difference to each individual owner. And in the grand scheme of things with team valuations, like you're making that back very easily just based on the deals that he's done over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, just put it in a nutshell here. Each team, by the time these media deals really kick in in a couple of years, each team's getting a check from the league every year for north of $400 million. Think about that. Before one penny of local revenue, local revenue, they're getting national revenue from the league north of $400 million. Now, the player cap right now is $230. let us say in a couple of years, it's $250. So right away, you've already got $150 million more than you're spending on players, theoretically, to do whatever. Now, I know there are other costs and operating costs, but think about what a business that is right now. And that's why, as you said, We've got $4 billion last year for the Broncos, and it looks like the commanders are wrapping up for over $6 billion. Yeah. It's just extraordinary. Well, the commanders numbers. are a great example because you know they've stunk. <laughs> you know this, right? Like they, they just haven't been good. And not only have they not been good, but they've been embroiled in controversy, right? Like they, there's been – Yeah, there's been things yes. every year it feels like, or even every few months where there's lawsuits, there's suspensions, there's fines, whatever it is. But to your point about the national media rights, 
it doesn't matter <laughs> because they get this check for $400 million every single year. And the valuation of the team is going to continue to go up because they're one of these 32 teams and it's fixed. They're not going anywhere. There's no relegation. There's no promotion, none of that kind of stuff. And it doesn't really matter. And then if you're a team like two, uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was Brady, right? He's obviously buying a minority stake in the Raiders. The Raiders just got a big chunk of their new stadium paid for by taxpayers. So if, yes. if you're getting like this huge billion dollar stadium that is partially paid for by taxpayers and you're getting income at a national level that's greater than maybe you could do on your own because the biggest teams are kind of shouldering some of that weight, it's an incredible business to be in. You know, I said it a couple of years ago about the Raiders and we can talk about player contracts and Mahomes 400 million and Lionel Messi 200 million a year, but no one makes deals like NFL owners yeah. with municipalities because as you mentioned, the state of Nevada paid a $750 million stadium subsidy to build that stadium, that beautiful Allegiant Stadium across from the Strip. And then they were outdone by the state of New York, which gave $850 million to the Bills. Yep. Then they were outdone six months ago by the Nashville Tennessee Titans and the, the city of Nashville, which is giving $1.2 billion. So the Titans who are billionaires, can build a stadium. So, you know, my saying on this, it's privatized profit, socialized cost. The owners do a wonderful job of that because, as you said, there's such, such scarce assets. So everything we just talked about is you could say, well, it didn't have to be Roger Goodell. Maybe a college kid could st stand in that place and do it. Well, he's the guy. Yeah. So they're going to reward him. The only thing I was a little surprised, Joe, is that once he got those two major pieces done, the player deal, which is a 10-year deal, and the media deal, which is a 10-year deal, they all go through like 2030 or 31 or 32. I thought he might step down. I thought the same thing. I thought he might. Yeah. Or go into politics or do whatever. So it's a little surprising to me from his end, but hey, it's his, he's a lifer. You know, he's the only commissioner that's not a lawyer of the big four sports. He's a lifer there. Start as an intern. When I was working for the Packers, you know, he was moving his way up and eventually got to commissioner. I saw the trajectory of him throughout his career. Yeah. And one of the interesting things, though, is that it sets up an interesting timeline, right? Because if the media deals come up and we'll call it like early 2030s uh, and the player CBA also, are you going right. to... Is he going to stay for that or does he retire potentially like three to four years before that and someone new comes in and does those deals, right? Like I would imagine that the owners probably want him to do those deals considering the success <laughs> that he's had in the past, but then you're asking him to stay another decade at that point. I guess I would disagree. I would say that everyone would be ready for someone fresh at that point because then you'd have a three, two, two, three-year ramp-up period to get, get ready for those deals. Yeah. And then, you know, you know better than I do on this. The the next wave of media deals is not going to be standard CBS, ESPN. No. You know, obviously Amazon's going to be back in, but it's going to look very different. So they probably need someone from a tech, media, new age background at that point. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that is particularly obvious now that they've done this deal for the one playoff game with Peacock, right? It's $110 million for a single playoff game for exclusive. And- Right. Like there's a bunch of different ways you can look at this from an ROI perspective to determine if it's worth it for, to Peacock. But I also think, and I, I forget who was writing about this, but I, I largely agreed with it, was that 
the NFL also wants some leverage when it comes to the next media rights deal, right? Which is the idea that Amazon has been a little bit tougher to negotiate with than I think they imagined when they first started this. Everyone sees Amazon <laughs> as like this multi-billion dollar company that can spend and do whatever it wants, but then they, they drive a hard bargain with the NFL and obviously they pay them a bunch of money, but now we have this new rule where they're able to flex Thursday night games because they didn't get the ratings they want and so forth. So you bring in Peacock, which is you know, I think it's very clear that's not going to be a very high watched or high viewed game. The ratings aren't going to be great. And I assume they're doing that. And I'm curious what your opinion is, is I mean, I assume they're doing that because they want to get some other people in the mix in the meantime, before the next media rights negotiation comes up. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because Peacock, the schedule came out in early May and no one really noticed that Peacock does have a streaming only game on the regular season. It's what week 16? Yeah, it's Chargers, somebody, yeah. yeah. And then you realize, well, whoa, that's interesting. <laughs> then a, a wild card game. But you know where this is going. I mean, in a couple of years, there'll be two wild card games only streaming. Then there'll be a divisional round game. And God forbid, a championship game in the next the, round of the, bargaining. The Super Bowl in, uh, in a decade from now, maybe on pay-per-view the way we're headed. Yeah, so I think we may have seen the last massive sort of mostly over the air type of deal. Again, like you said, we got to see where this goes. I mean, the Amazon relationship, you said something very interesting there. You said Amazon's got all this money. Bezos is worth more than anyone in the world, but Amazon is a hard bargainer. That's so true of these multi-billionaires. I mean, I remember talking to Russell Wilson's agent last year. He's dealing with the Walton family. Like, you can't get bigger than yeah. that, right? They own the Broncos now. And he said they were every little penny and every little clause and 20000 here for a workout bonus and fifty. I'm like, wow. And that just, it underscores. The Waltons don't get to be multi-billionaire. Jeff Bezos doesn't get to be a multi-billionaire without fighting these little things. So that's what's happening there. And Bezos made some noise, or his people did about having some dud games late in the season, and look what the NFL did. They have allowed now for flexing of Thursday night football late in the season up to two games where they're moving a Sunday game into Thursday, a more attractive matchup, and pushing the Thursday game back to Sunday. And you're like, wow. I mean, that's an affront to fans. Even John Maris said it when it was first brought up a couple of months ago. But they got the votes. And I just look at that as the power of Amazon right now, as you said, with their bargaining over fans. You know, fans can talk about, but they're not party to these negotiations. They're kind of pawns in these negotiations. Yeah. Now, let's be fair. It's a 28-day notice now. It used to be 15-day. Now it's 28-day notice. So theoretically, fans can make their plans a month in advance. But that's a big, big give to Amazon, I think. Well, and, and the other part of it too is, what is it now? You can have multiple Thursday night football games a year if you're on a team, right? So uh, you could have two, two, right? Yeah, so the player yeah. safety component is is certainly a part of it. it. The fan thing's another thing. I just think that it's a little bit ruthless from the NFL, right? Like it's very clear what they're doing here. It's not about the fan experience. It's not about player safety. It's about money. And they want to make sure that Amazon, who's paying them, a billion dollars a year for one night of football a week is happy. And, you know, you can give the NFL a hard time about that, but ultimately this money trickles down to everything else. It trickles down to the players. It trickles down to the fan experience. It trickles down to the stadiums. 
all of that stuff. So it's a little bit hard to sit here and, and criticize them too heavily because of you know how big they've made the game and how successful it's become. But also you yeah. can look at it in a little bit of a vacuum and say, hey, we, we understand what's going on here. <laughs> we do. And I think Bezos was rumored so often about the commanders and maybe other teams. And I'm looking at it pretty simplistically. I'm like, why does he need that? Yeah. He's got all 32 teams one night a week. Yeah. You know, so why has he got to spend six billion on one team when he's spending a billion a year to have all 32 teams and owns Thursday night? We're just a year into, like we just talked about, a year into an 11 year deal. So you won't see Thursday night football any place other than Amazon for over a decade right now. So this is a partner they want to keep happy, obviously. What, do you think that Brady's uh, – so for people that don't know already, Brady bought a minority stake in the Las Vegas Raiders. I don't think it's come out how much it is. I've heard like you know low single-digit percentages, but he bought a stake. He owns part of the team now from Mark Davis. This is his second business deal with Mark Davis. He bought a minority stake in the Las Vegas Aces, the WNBA team that he also owns. This is a stake that Mark Davis has been trying to sell for a while, reportedly. He was in talks with Magic Johnson last year, who's now part of the ownership group with the Commanders. He uh, ends up selling it to Brady, and there's rumors that he might be trying to sell a little bit more of the team also. But specifically around Brady, does this change anything with Fox, you think? I don't think so. I mean, I think they're in the loop. And I think, you know, there was kind of a surprise when Brady said, I'm not going to start in 23. I'm not going to start this year with my broadcast career. It's going to wait a year. So then, you know, naturally think, what is he going to do? Is he going to wait around to maybe play in, in November with a good team? But this is something for him to stay involved. My first reaction, Joe, was, well, he's not paying retail. Yeah. You know, yeah. so if it's valued at $5 billion and he's getting 1%, he's not paying $50 million. Because as everyone knows, name value is so important. You know, when have you and I ever talked about a, a minority partner on a team? Yeah. Uh, he's got just incredible name value, maybe the biggest name ever to play in the sport. And that's going to be important for the Raiders. It's giving him cash already. We're talking about the Raiders ownership. We're talking about the Raiders, talking about the Las Vegas Aces. So I, I have heard deals like this are structured where they really come up with a value for the name going forward and they factor it into price. So Whatever he's paying, as I said, it's not retail. And I think it's a way for him to get involved. What's me interesting is sort of Dave Ziegler, the GM of the Raiders. Is that going to be a consulting? You know, is he going to ask Brady for advice on things? And is Brady going to work with Josh McDaniels? Is Brady going to work with Jimmy Garoppolo, who he obviously knows very well? So we'll see where Brady goes. But this is not new, right? This is... Jay-Z with the Nets. Yeah. This is now Lewis Hamilton with the uh, Broncos and Serena Williams with the Dolphins and on and on and on. And I guess there's now a template. You know, celebrities pay this fraction of the price compared to market. Well, one of the important things to keep in mind, too, is that you know this, Andrew, but for people that don't, is minority stakes in franchises, specifically across the major sports leagues here in the United States – 
they typically sell at somewhat of a discount to anyone, right? So like if the stake's worth $100 million, maybe you can buy it for $80 million because it's not liquid, right? You don't have the ability to go and sell it on the open market. It's a minority stake, so you don't have any say in anything. Really, all you get is season tickets, right? So they give you this kind of incentive to go and buy these minority stakes. But for someone like Brady, he's probably getting an even better discount than that because of all the things you mentioned that his name comes with, right? He's going to be able to talk to the team. We're talking about them on this podcast, a bunch of other things uh, that go alongside it. He's going to show up to Raiders games and so forth. So I think that's a big part of it too. And then the other thing I would add to this from my perspective is like the teams are just getting so expensive that this is a requirement now, right? Like if you look at the commanders, that's actually a perfect example. I think Josh Harris owns 30% of the team, which is the minimum that you have to own to buy an NFL franchise. And then I think there's 17 other limited partners in on the deal. Right. So the rest of the equity, the 70% equity is split up amongst 17 other people. And that's kind of the blueprint now, right? Like you're going to have some institutional funds, not in the NFL yet, but eventually you'll probably get there because we're seeing it in the NBA, we're seeing it in other leagues. And the teams are just getting too expensive to have one person come in and buy 100% of the equity. I mean, Josh Harris has the typical deal we're going to see going forward with these kind of prices. And let me just take you inside what I heard, because listen, I'm a Washingtonian. Daniel Snyder's a Washingtonian. Josh Harris is a Washingtonian. His other big partner, Mitchell Rails, is a Washingtonian. I heard from a guy that was approached and he basically said to me, so they wanted $100 million so I could get good seats. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I was talking about. You really just get tickets, right? Yeah, $100 million so I get good seats and tell people I was a part owner and just didn't make any sense. And he didn't tell me what the 100 million share would get him or a percentage, but that's what we're talking about here. You know, minority owners are paying a ton of money to get not the psychosocial benefit that Josh Harris is going to get or Magic Johnson. Yep. By the way, I heard Magic, unlike what we just talked about with Brady, I heard Magic Johnson is putting in quote unquote real money into the commanders. So I don't know how you define real money, but it's not like a Brady or Serena. It sounds like Magic is putting in quote unquote real money into that commander's deal. Yeah, which is not necessarily surprising, but uh, different yeah. maybe than, than we've seen in the past. And I think also the other part of this too, and one of the reasons why I think um, the rules are probably going to be changing at some point is, you know, you know this, the NFL always seems to be last to do everything, right? Like <laughs> they, they want to see everything work out. There's no reason to rock the ship. Like let's let the other leagues try and test new things. We'll see what works and then we'll adapt it. And uh, people are probably familiar that the NBA has significantly changed their bylaws over the last few years where institutional funds can now own minority stakes in teams. There's a rule around kind of how much you're able to buy and uh, how many stakes you're able to own in different teams and so forth. But ultimately, it's an amazing investment for them because they can go out and they can raise a bunch of money and they can invest it in these teams. It has a long track record of appreciation. So you know that you're going to make money on the deal. It's locked up for 5, 10, 15, 20 years at a time. And you're able to clip 2% management fees every single year from the money that you raise. So I think we're going to see one, a bunch of funds eventually raising money that are able to go do this if the NFL allows it and so forth. But two, uh, the other interesting thing that the NBA did was now you can be an endowment, right? You can be a sovereign wealth fund and you can do it. So we're talking about Harvard, right? We're talking about big money here, institutions that don't have a lot of places to put their money right now. 
And maybe you say that's not the best use of it or whatever, but I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to have that investment on their resume, who want to be able to say, we're a part owner in this team or whatever it is. And again, with valuations getting so high, this is going to become necessary. And I think it's only going to make the uh, the team numbers go up, right? And part of me thinks that's why Brady's getting involved now, Magic Johnson's getting involved now, because as high as the valuations look today, they're still going to go higher. They're not slowing down, right? Like they're just going to go higher. I mean, a lot of these teams will never sell yeah. Dallas Cowboys, New England Patriots. I mean, but I do think the NFL, like you said, is going to have to get to the 21st century with opening it up. You know, we always had, we, meaning when I was with the NFL and these meetings, it was always this one person per club and there's Dan Rooney and there's Dean Spanos and there's Stan Kroenke. And it's kind of like, that's the the boys club where you just sort of have a guy and it's very messy for the NFL to think about a a fund or something that's sort of more amorphous than a guy. And that's, the NFL's always sort of operated that way. But with these franchise values skyrocketing the way they are, it's going to be harder and harder to have that guy. So Josh Harris is trying to be that guy, but he's got to get this group together. And as much as the NFL wants Snyder clean out of the place, they're still trying to get this financing together. Because as I said, you know, it's not easy to get people giving two, three, five hundred million dollars and not being able to, you know, tell their friends they're the owner, not having any input, just going around with a, a minor, you know, great tickets, whatever it is. Yeah, it's uh, certainly seems like times are changing and uh, the NFL hopefully at some point will be a part of that. But let's talk about Green Bay. What was your feeling about them getting the uh, NFL draft in 2025? Well, I remember when the NFL draft was based in New York only, and I think, I'm not sure about this, I think Radio City Music Hall had a scheduling conflict one year, and that's when they kind of moved it out. And now it's been moved around in Chicago and Nashville and Philly, where I was at, and of course, Kansas City this year, it's become a boon, and it's become a chip for the NFL to give out something, not a Super Bowl, not a Pro Bowl, not any kind of perk in another way, but now they can give out a draft. So now they've given, you know, the Titans and the Chiefs and the Eagles their little shit over the past few years. Detroit next year, and of course, the Packers. Listen, I don't say this with any um, deprecation about Green Bay, but they're never going to get a Super Bowl, of course. Yeah. They're probably, probably never going to get a league meeting even, but they got draft. And I'm obviously partial, having lived there 10 years, they will put on a show. They will make it. You guys haven't seen the true shrine of football that Green Bay is. I think they'll have the actual event at Lambeau and, and fill it, but all the area around Titletown and all the history and Jerry Kramer and Paul Horning and Vince Lombardi and Curly Lambeau statues and everything, I think it'll be great. You know, I'm already planning to go back to my home next year in 2025. So They'll put on a show. They'll they'll do a great job, and I think we'll see Green Bay in all its glory. Do you, does Green Bay have enough infrastructure for this? I've never been, right? So I'm going to caveat it with that, that I've never been to Green Bay. I would obviously love to go. I think it's one of the most historic venues when it comes to the NFL. It's like a bucket list item for sure. I feel like everyone has to go at some point. But I remember reading yeah. something that like they've been trying for a number of years to get the draft. And uh, essentially, the NFL was like, you know, there's a, there's hundreds of thousands of people potentially coming into your city for this. We need hotel rooms. We need restaurants. We need all this kind of stuff. Do you think that 
is that a problem or it's fine? Well, I think they're going to have to improve that. I think we have the Green Bay has a lot of hotels in the surrounding area, not necessarily Green Bay proper, but you go to Appleton and you go to Waukesha and you go outside of Milwaukee, outside of Madison. You know, my sense of the draft is it's mo- it's a lot of people that are in the market that would be coming to the Chiefs game or Titans game or now Packers game. And then you have your smattering of fans from other markets. But I think they'll they'll have enough. Yeah, because it's, it's mostly people idea. that are local, right? Like if you look at Kansas City, yeah. it's essentially like a festival, right? It's like you bring your kids there. There's games. You can get autographs. You yeah. get pictures with the trophies. But it's really – meant for locals. And then there's like a, a portion, I don't know if it's 10% or 15% or whatever, but there's a portion of fans that travel for it. And then obviously you have the draft picks, their family, stuff like that. I think the crazies that dress up in the other uniforms are not necessarily from those other markets. Yeah. <laughs> they could be from the same market. When we went in uh, Philly, my son, you know, we're still obviously Packer fans. My son's wearing his Packers jersey, whatever it was, Aaron Rodgers or someone else. And when the Packers pick came up, we were sitting close up front. The cameras came over and they said to my son, act crazy, act crazy. (laughs) So it's that whole, it's a TV show. So yeah, they find these people. I don't think you're going to have a lot of -of out-of-towners. So they're not paid actors, right? (laughs) <laughs> that, that was uh i don't think that that was my son didn't get paid. Yeah, i was gonna say yeah. if he didn't get paid uh the people on twitter that are that are peddling that theory are gonna be uh, upset to learn that <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome though speaking of aaron Rodgers, he's obviously made the move to the jets how are you feeling about i mean you know you've seen this stuff firsthand already where the packers drafted aaron Rodgers and, and said goodbye to brett Favre, and it's kind of deja vu at this point sending him to the jets as okay. well Talk me through, let's start first with the transition Aaron to a new team, right? What he's going to be facing there. And then secondly, I want to talk about Jordan Love, right? And like how that goes is him taking the reins on the franchise. Yeah, Joe, I have to pat myself on the back a little bit here because I thought the Packers had all the leverage in this trade. And I know people are saying, well, the Jets had leverage because they were the only suitor for Aaron Rodgers, which is a story in itself. But the Packers, I thought, had the leverage and I thought used it very well because the Jets... I define leverage. I tell my students this all the time. Leverage is with the party in the negotiation that is most comfortable with the status quo. So if you are in the negotiation, you're most comfortable with the way it is right now. You have the leverage. The Packers had their quarterback on their roster. Rodgers wasn't there. They owed Rodgers no money, no money until September. Look at the other side. The Jets have told the world he's he's their new quarterback. The Jets flew out to California to kiss the ring. The Jets uh, have a fan base frothing at the mouth. Had So the Packers had leverage. And let's just sum it up. The Packers got a flip of first-round picks. They got a second-round pick. They got a pick that will most likely be a first-round pick next year. And people don't make enough of this. They offloaded $100 million. That's a lot of money. Yeah. They offloaded... All of this for a player that was never, ever in God's green earth going to play for the Packers again. So it's an extraordinary trade for the Packers in my mind. So now he goes to New York. And I told you when we're off air, I said, people in New York are like, he's he's saying he's not a savior. Of course he's a savior. (laughs) They're thinking he's going to the Super Bowl. They're thinking he's going to change the whole team. And I'm an unabashed 
fan of Aaron Rodgers. I think he'll be great. But I think their problem is the Chiefs, the Bills, and the Bengals, who are more advanced teams in the AFC. But we'll see. Transition-wise, Aaron's a good guy. His, his intelligence is off the charts. He's got Nate Hackett there, who's been a fan and a confidant of him for years in Green Bay. I think he'll do well. I think there won't be a huge ramp up for Aaron Rodgers. I think it's going to be interesting to see the inevitable when you know things go south for a game, for two games, a bunch of interceptions. It always happens with every quarterback, how Jets respond. The one thing I don't get as, as much as many people, though, is this idea that the New York media is this, you know, snakeful, you know, harsh, going to tear them apart. I haven't seen it. You know, I'll be honest. I haven't seen it. They had the Jets just busted on the number two pick in the draft a couple of years ago. The reason they went and got Aaron Rodgers is because this guy, Zach Wilson, busted. I haven't seen a lot of harsh New York media to the Jets about that. I mean, that's a major, major screw up. It's like they screw up, you know, it's like a, it's one pick away from Trevor Lawrence. It's where all these top quarterbacks are drafted. So I haven't seen the harshness of the New York media yet. I, I think maybe that probably ends up being a good thing for Rodgers, right? Like you come into a situation where they did bust on a quarterback and the fans haven't seen success in the team in a long time. And if you do screw up a little bit, as long as things are you know trending in the right direction and there's some moments of brilliance, they probably give you a little bit longer of a leash than they might have before because the circumstance yeah. was so bad before. But I tend to agree. Like the New York stuff is is overblown to some degree, right? It's like, you know, obviously New York is a, is a big market, but I would argue that uh, Green Bay fans are just as passionate, right? They may not be as big of a fan base, but if things aren't going well, they're gonna they're gonna tell you and they're gonna let you know as well. So, you know, he yeah. was he was a huge superstar when it came to the game of football beforehand, and he will be afterwards. I don't think it's gonna make a huge difference, but I do wonder what does the transition look like now for Jordan Love, right? Obviously, you're you're taking over for someone who was a Hall of Fame player, one of the best to ever do it. It's going to be pretty tough to live up to those standards, but he gets a new deal, right? So I assume my, my assumption around this deal was like, let's get a little, let's de-risk ourselves a little bit. So we'll get some guaranteed money. We'll maybe take a little bit of money off the table if things don't go well, but you know, Hey, it's okay. What is your feeling on, on his transition and kind of how that will all look and feel? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it earlier that we haven't talked you and I since the whole thing. It's it, the, the deja vu is eerie for someone like me. 15 years ago, we moved on from Brett Favre to this guy who'd been sitting in our bullpen for three years, first round pick named Aaron Rodgers. And here they are. They're saying goodbye to the face of the franchise, Aaron Rodgers, and moving on to this guy who's been sitting in the bullpen for three years, first round pick, Jordan Love. I watched Jordan's press conference a couple of weeks ago, just like I watched Aaron in person 15 years ago. And it's uncanny. They're, again, Jordan seems to have a nice calm about him, a nice way of not taking things too seriously. It served Aaron so well in 2008 when the whole Brett thing was going on. Brett came back. He unretired. He wanted his job back. And I talked to Aaron at that time and I said, just keep your head down. Just do what you're doing. We believe in you. And he did a great job of that. I mean, think about Jordan Love having to sit there for three years, never knowing when, he, if and when he's going to play. And I think he's handled himself well. The on the field stuff, Joe, I'm not 
a scout. I, I you know, it seems to me you got to trust the Green Bay scouts. Yeah. They've seen something in this guy that they think can be strong. He's still young. I I agree with you on the deal. The deal was really kind of a you hate to use these cliches, but it really was a win-win where the Packers could have paid 22 over 2. Uh they end up paying about 15 guaranteed over 2. Jordan could have had a downside of two and not have the option picked up. So now he gets 15 guaranteed, just kind of makes sense from both sides. They de-risk the second year. They now have him under contract without an option contract. So he's got a two-year leash and uh, I think he'll be fine. You know, expectations are the key to life. This is the first time Packers fans will have to temper their expectations. You know, we're not going to be picked as a playoff team because we've got a first time starting quarterback. It's just the name of the game. And that's different <laughs> for Packers fans. That's really different. It's 30 years of having a franchise level quarterback. So uh, it's going to be different, but I, I'm impressed with love what I've seen so far. Andrew, I'm a Giants fan. So I feel no sympathy for yeah. you guys. You know, it's like we, we've, we've been through the ringer the last few years and we're finally starting to feel a little bit better with, uh, with new coach, new GM, assigning the quarterback and stuff. And every fan base has to go through it at some point. And you guys were fortunate enough for however many years to uh, not have to deal with this, which is which is a blessing. And to be honest, if it works out again, I might be upset because <laughs> it's like you can't ask for a better situation, right? Going from a Hall of Famer to another Hall of Famer. And then if it becomes another Hall of Famer again, it's like, you know, that's just unrealistic to some degree. And they're both traded to the Jets. I made a joke like, in 2038, we're going to see the trade of Jordan Love to the Jets. Yeah, yeah. well, hey, if that's uh, what ends up happening, that probably means that the Packers had a pretty good run. So uh, I don't think that the fans will be mad about that. Last thing I want to talk about today is the new kickoff rule, right? So the NFL has changed a number yeah. of rules over the last few years, we'll call it, to enhance player safety. And I don't know if you saw this, but Axios had a cool chart this morning that was essentially showing the number of kickoffs on a percentage basis that are returned every year. And if you look at like 20, 2006, 2007, almost 20 years ago, it was like 95 plus percent of kickoffs were returned. So every time basically the kickoff was kicked, it was returned by a player and a real play. That was down to 37% last year. Obviously, they made a number of changes where they moved the kickoff up. It incentivizes people to uh, get touchbacks and bring the ball out to the 25. And now they're adding a new rule where if you fair catch the ball within the 25, it gets brought out to the 25. So even if you're, you know, uh, coaching the kickoff team and you say, hey, put it in the corner, we want to stretch the field as much as possible, but keep it in bounds and don't let it go in the end zone. It doesn't matter anymore now, right? That completely takes that away and, and it could potentially yeah. lead to, to even more touchbacks. What do you think is going on here? Is this just a case of the NFL trying to reduce injuries further? I think it is. I mean, it's all in the name of player safety. The data back when they moved the touchback from the 20 to 25 was that this is the most concussive play in football. So let's have, as you said, let's have less kickoff returns, thereby less injuries. Let's make it. And this is a continuation of that where they're showing data, they being the NFL, that either it hasn't improved or it hasn't improved that much. So here's the rule. You can raise your hand and whether you're at the 1, 2, 5, 10, 15, 20-yard line and you get it moved up to the 25 and there's no hitting of you as a returner. I think this is all in good name. You're going to have less returns and you're going to have more safety, thereby less injuries. That's the goal. 
But the problem is special teams coaches are smart people. You know, so as you said before, with this 25 rule, the original rule, moving to 25, they're instructing their kicker to pop it up and land at the five. And then you, you get the momentum of people coming down to knock them down. Now they're going to say, well, what about squib kicks? You know, you can't fair catch a squib kick. So the goal is have it bounce around, have some flutter kick, have some angled kick, and you can't fair catch it or some line dart kick. They'll try everything. So we'll see. I got to say this. We can't get too down on the NFL about any of this, right? Because we get down on them about Thursday night football and player safety, right? We get down on them or prioritizing profit over safety. Can't get down on this. I mean, this is this is noble, right? Now it takes away. Is it- I was just going to say the only thing that the only counter argument I would have to that, right? And uh, again, this is uh, Sports Illustrated pub- publishes data, I believe. So Roger Goodell, to your point, he said, "Look, this is the most dangerous play in football. The data indicates that you're more likely to get on hurt on a kickoff than anything else. We're going to try to do exactly what you're saying, which is." Limit injuries. Maybe it takes a little bit of fun out of the game, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's worth it for player safety. And uh, Sports Illustrated had some interesting data. They said that 99.3% of kickoffs last season were concussion-free, right? So we're just talking about concussions. We're not talking about any other injuries. So I'll caveat it with the fact that there could be other things. And 99.3% seems high, but relative to other plays, maybe it's not that high. There were only 19 concussions on kickoffs last season, which you know, relative to other plays. I don't know if that's high or not. We probably need more context there. But 11 out of those 19 concussions happened when a returner took the ball out of the end zone. So 11 out of the 19 concussions that happened on kickoff last year were when the ball was kicked into the end zone and the person took it out. That play is not changing. That can still happen. And my argument to this would be that this may create more injuries potentially because of what you just mentioned, which is you're going to be doing squib kicks. You're going to be kicking the ball all over the place. You're going to create a bunch of unnatural plays to try to get an advantage potentially as the kicking team that may be a little bit different than how the game looks today. And again, the one thing I would say to all of this is I think it's a one-year trial. So they can amend it after this season. Maybe they go backwards. Maybe they do something else. I think it's worth testing ultimately, right? Like you're not going to know unless you test it and get some data from it. But I wouldn't be surprised to see them either A, roll this back or change the rule in some way after the season. You know, it's funny because we as NFL media, NFL analysts, always look for what's the ulterior motive. Yeah. Like, And here, I guess what I'm saying is I can't find one. You know, I, it, it's really, noble is probably too strong a word, but it's really about safety. Why would they do this? Why would they do this? Why would they limit this scintillating play and when they're all about entertainment value why would they do this and i can't come up with another reason like wow they really are concerned about safety now we're still having thursday night football we're still having turf fields everywhere but at least this has some nobility to it yeah i uh i completely agree that you know i don't think it's meant with uh ill intention or anything like that i just think that sometimes you have to look at it and say what's going to be the reaction, right? And that may be a different reaction from the team perspective on kind of the consequences of this rule change. But look, I, at the end of the day, I think it's a good thing. It's one year. We'll test it. We'll see how it goes. 
and uh, yeah. the NFL is going to be successful regardless, I imagine, right? Like this, uh, this isn't going to make a huge difference. So Andrew, as always, yeah, I, I was just going to say, as always, I appreciate your time, man. You are excellent at this type of stuff, first off. Second off, I appreciate you on short notice just saying yes. You always say yes, which is amazing, and I appreciate it. And third off, since you won't plug it, I will. Andrew writes an amazing newsletter, Sunday 7, comes out every Sunday, has a bunch of thoughts on different things that are going on in the sports world. From a business perspective, he obviously has great experience, but also it's not just NFL. I think you were writing about basketball last week. You had Tiger Woods in there. You had a bunch of different things. So. It is an awesome read every Sunday. I highly recommend people go sign up for it. Where's the easiest place? Is it uh, andrewbrandt.com? Andrew-brandt.com is where you sign up. And yeah, I mean, I think everyone should get the Joe Pompiano newsletter. Every- <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Man. And jump in, jump in Sundays for mine as well. It's a nice uh, compliment. I appreciate it. Absolutely. That. You have to, uh, you got to have something every day. You know, it's like if you get Monday, Wednesday, Friday from me, come to you for Sunday, some podcasts in between from both of us, and you'll be covered for sports business. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work, as you know, and I think that everyone should be uh, following along, but also reading and uh, listening to your stuff too. Likewise. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Joe. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that. Hope you enjoyed my discussion of Brady and Garoppolo, but also all things NFL with my friend Joe Pompliano. I think it gives you good insights into what's going on in this offseason that's never an offseason with NFL business. <laughs> okay, newsletter, andrew-brandt.com. If you want even more, if you want me every day and weekly meetings, andrew-brandt.com slash SBL, the Sports Business League. Instagram Reels, Andrew Brandt 2, Twitter, Andrew Brandt. And of course, share the podcast with a friend. Try to make it unique. If you have comments, questions, just uh, leave a comment, leave a rating. We really appreciate a rating for the podcast. And again, share with whoever you got. I think they'll find it interesting and unique. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks to Jack Connell. Thanks to Sam Brandt, my musical producer. Thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week on the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.